Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of war and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. How dangerous can two little old ladies really be? Well, in the case of this particular story, the answer is absolutely lethal, though no one would think it at first glance. Helen Golay was a Texan with big hair and a mind for real estate. Olga Rutterschmidt was a fast-talking Hungarian immigrant who made a habit out of suing people. On their own, their ethics were questionable, but not technically criminal. However, once they got together, they became co-conspirators in a shocking insurance scheme, one that left millions of dollars in their pockets and at least two bodies in their wake. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Today, we'll meet Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt. We'll learn about their rough beginnings before they teamed up in Los Angeles. Then we'll follow the partners in crime as they go from middle-aged man-eaters to cold-blooded killers. Next time, we'll watch the women lure in another victim. But when their greed got the best of them, they attracted the attention of an insurance fraud investigator. And before long, the LAPD and FBI were in the hunt too. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Once they became friends, Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt did just about everything together. They toned their physiques at the gym, prowled exclusive hotels for men, and they killed for money. But while the two were joined at the hip in adulthood, their beginnings couldn't have been more different. Now, because she was born first, we'll start with Helen's story, which began in Texas in 1931. And her childhood was marred by instability and tragedy. Soon after her birth, her mom left the family and ran off with another man. When she was still just a young girl, her dad died in a car crash. She moved in with her grandfather in Texas, then her cousins in Washington State, but nothing lasted. 
Eventually, during her late teens, she ended up in foster care, which she left once she turned 18. Before we continue with this episode's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Today, we're starting with a closer look at the effects of foster care. We all know how difficult that system can be, but what people don't talk about as much are the challenges that kids face once they age out. According to a report from youth.gov, former foster care youth often have trouble finding stable housing or a steady job. That certainly lines up with Helen's experience. After graduating high school, she tried to make it on her own in Oakland, California, struggling to find a good job and provide for herself. But she soon found out that it was easier to rely on someone else than to fend for herself. In this instance, that someone else was 22-year-old Vernon Golay. We don't know the specifics of how they met in 1951, but we know Vernon was a Navy veteran on his way to becoming a dentist with a pretty nice salary. That meant he could take care of Helen in a way no one had since she was a little girl. So when he asked her to marry him a few months later, she likely said yes without hesitation. The couple settled down in Salem, Oregon and went on to have two daughters. For a while, it seemed that Helen's life was changed for the better. She wanted for nothing and was in a loving, stable home. But then around 1960, after nine years of marriage, it all came crashing down. For reasons we don't know, the couple divorced. Helen kept the girls and returned to California. At some point after that, she got back into the dating scene, and in the spring of 1962, she wound up pregnant by another guy. The relationship didn't last, but she decided to keep the baby and named her Keisha. In her book, Signed in Blood, author Jeannie King claims Vernon wasn't happy with this new development and made it clear that he'd only pay child support for their daughters and not Keisha. Now, it's unclear if Helen ever even asked him to help out with Keisha, but the fact remains that there was now an extra mouth to feed. The stress of it all seemed to weigh on her, as did her ex's financial presence. Perhaps she felt stifled under his shadow and wanted to prove she could make it on her own. By the mid-60s, 30-something Helen and her daughters were trying to make a home in Los Angeles, but the single mother struggled to make ends meet. Sure, she picked up the odd job here and there, but that was about it, so at times she had to rely on welfare just to get by. Then one day, her luck changed. At some point in the 70s, she got a job working in real estate, which brought her into the orbit of mogul Artie Aaron. She started bringing in real money for the first time in her life, and she was even able to purchase several rental properties of her own. Given her history, you might expect Helen to be a sympathetic landlord, but that wasn't the case. She wanted to make as much dough as she possibly could, so she raised her rents through the roof. But in 1979, the city of Los Angeles passed the Rent Stabilization Ordinance. This meant that landlords could only increase rent once a year and by only so much. After that, a lot of property owners felt like they couldn't make a profit anymore. Helen, though? She took it in stride. She figured there were other ways to make a quick buck off her tenants, one of which was collecting fines if they broke any of her rules. But for that to work, Helen had to catch people in the act. So over the next several years, she peered in windows, listened at doors, and snooped on them. 
Unsurprisingly, most of her residents weren't too pleased when she wrote them up for frivolous reasons. They came to think of her as a mean-spirited bully without an ounce of empathy. But it seems Helen didn't care what people thought about her as long as she got her money. That said, it was a lonely way of life, made even lonelier when all of her daughters grew up and moved out of the house. By this stage, Helen was in her 50s. It's a difficult age to find new friends, but she wasn't gonna sit home alone for the rest of her life. So to meet new people and keep herself busy, she regularly visited the Sports Connection Athletic Club. This was the perfect place for her to run into like-minded people. Around this time, jazzercise was taking America by storm. Women of all ages were flocking to their local gyms in colorful spandex, ready to sculpt their bodies. And Helen couldn't get enough of it. She was obsessed with her appearance and went to the gym as often as she could. It was on one of those days sometime in the mid-80s that Helen met Olga Ruderschmidt. At first glance, Olga was just like her. She was in her 50s, fit and fabulous. But as I mentioned at the start, their beginnings couldn't have been more different. Olga was born in 1933, just two years after Helen and more than 5,000 miles away in Budapest, Hungary. As Olga tells it, the defining moment of her youth happened one night in 1944. World War II had taken over her home country. Overhead, Allied forces were bombing German-occupied Budapest. It was a scary time for everyone. Whenever Olga and her parents heard the attacks above them, they raced down into the basement. It was as close to a bomb shelter as they'd get. Usually they stayed there until the fighting ceased. But on that day, the 11-year-old grew tired of waiting. She just wanted to play her piano. So she ignored her parents' orders and ran upstairs. She booked it to the instrument, but just as she hit the first few keys, a bomb hit her family's apartment. Olga was blown back by the force and the building crumbled around her. Her hand was crushed by a block and she struggled to break free. And for a few excruciating minutes, she probably wondered if she'd even survive. Thankfully, her parents climbed through the rubble and came to her rescue, but Olga didn't make it out unscathed. Her right hand was badly damaged and she worried she'd never be able to play again. Throughout the ordeal, Olga had been holding back her tears, but now she let it all out. It's possible it was the first time she wanted to leave her home country. And it certainly wouldn't be the last. You see, life was complicated in Budapest, and her family's situation didn't make it any easier. When Olga was a teenager, her parents got divorced, and her father started a second family. This meant Olga and her mother had to fend for themselves. Then, to make matters worse, an uprising broke out in Hungary in 1956. By then, Olga was 23 and ready for a fresh start. So she left her mother and her homeland behind and fled. She journeyed across the border into another European country. From there, she made her way to New York City, where a local family sponsored her. What she actually got up to during that time is unclear, but by the early 1970s, the 40-something had made the journey to Los Angeles. There, she met and married her husband, Endra Ruderschmidt. Soon after that, the two opened up a coffee shop in Hollywood. 
In a way, the small business symbolized her rise to success. From a child of war to a businesswoman, Olga was the American dream personified. Unfortunately, her life followed the same trajectory as Helen's. It was great until it wasn't. In 1978, Olga's marriage ended. The coffee shop closed down and Olga was left on her own. Even worse, she was penniless. Her solution? Sue people. One time she was at a grocery store and claimed that a stack of boxes had fallen and maimed her. She hit the store with a personal injury claim. Another time she complained to a coffee shop manager that she'd been served subpar food. A nearby customer overheard the commotion and came to interject. Only they didn't just use their words. According to Olga, this third party shot her with a stun gun right there in the middle of the store. It's almost too wild to believe, don't you think? But Olga insisted it was all true. What's more, she claimed that the attack had caused her physical injuries and emotional trauma. So she filed a negligence claim against the coffee shop. It's unclear how well her strategy worked, but she clearly thought there was a reason to keep at it. Maybe that's how, by the mid-80s, she had a little bit of disposable income, which she used to visit the Sports Connection Athletic Club, which is where she reportedly met and became enamored with Helen Golay. I can't tell you anything about exactly how the pair met. What I can tell you is that from that moment on, their lives would never be the same. Coming up, Helen and Olga become partners in crime. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. Call it fate or destiny, but when Helen Golay met Olga Rutterschmidt, she felt an instant kinship. They were both beautiful health nuts, both divorced, and most importantly, they both liked the idea of making easy money. It was almost inevitable that the 50-somethings would be fast friends, and science might help explain exactly why that was. There's a running theory that it's more difficult to make friends as an adult. That's because, for many, our day-to-day -day is regimented with work and other responsibilities. 
As a result, there are far less opportunities for us to meet new people. Even when we do find someone we want to spark a platonic relationship with, adult friendships tend to evolve slowly. Of course, there are those kinds of people who can get real close, real fast, and you wonder how it all happened. Well, in 1997, researchers may have figured it all out. Through a controlled study, they found that carrying out self-disclosure and relationship-building tasks that gradually escalate in intensity may increase the chances of a fast friendship. Basically, you want to peel back the layers of your life and be vulnerable to your counterpart relatively quickly, but not too fast where it might scare someone away. Knowing this, I can only imagine Helen and Olga's first conversations. The two likely complimented each other on their svelte physiques and laughed about their shared love of working out. They probably revealed how they were both divorced and were unimpressed with the current dating pool. Then at some point, Olga might have mentioned her penchant for lawsuits. And that's probably when Helen knew she was staring at someone who might actually be on her level. Based on accounts provided by detectives involved in their case, it's easy to imagine how their friendship developed. One of their early capers together might have started with a phone call. Perhaps it was Helen who called Olga and told her to dress to the nines. She picked her up, brought her to the exclusive Beverly Hills Hotel, and the two strolled through the lobby like they owned the place. Then Helen grabbed Olga's arm and took her to the bathroom. They changed into their sexiest swimsuits and spent the day lounging at the pool. But they weren't there to relax. They were on a mission to charm a fabulously wealthy man and make off with whatever they could. It didn't take long for a guy to approach. He was immediately taken by Helen's southern drawl. And as Helen flirted with him, Olga pickpocketed his wallet. Then the two ladies excused themselves. They said they just needed to run to the bathroom and promised they'd be back in a minute. Instead, they ducked into a stall, changed back into their regular clothes, and strutted out of the hotel. By the time the guy realized he'd been fleeced by two middle-aged women, they were long gone. As far as we can tell, Olga was more than happy to be Helen's wingwoman, but Helen wasn't quite so pleased. While the scheme was fun, stealing wallets was small-time stuff. If they wanted to make real money, they'd need to change up the game. At this point, they'd each dabbled in the litigation business, and now seemed like the perfect time to combine their efforts. But here's what's weird about this whole thing. Helen didn't need the cash. By this point, she owned multiple properties in the Santa Monica area, and her real estate business was booming. And though we don't know the exact numbers she pulled in, she lived a comfortable life. And yet she always acted as if she was on the verge of being broke. One explanation for this attitude is that Helen couldn't escape her past. After raising three kids on her own, never knowing when the next paycheck was coming, it's possible she felt a compulsive need to hoard money. Investment advisor Amit Kukreja explains that these kinds of financial anxieties often stem from childhood. When traumatic experiences lead to poverty early on, it can make it harder to part with money later in life, even if the person is well off. And while saving money is usually a good thing, excessive penny pinching can signify an actual money disorder. According to psychologist Brad Klontz, money disorders occur when someone has a pattern of self-defeating or self-destructive financial behaviors. 
compulsive hoarding falls under that umbrella. Now, I know we usually think of hoarders as people with mountains of objects, but you can also stockpile money. For some people, this isn't because they need the cash, it's because the more money they have, the more secure they feel in life. But while Helen wasn't strapped for cash, Olga actually was broke. She lived off housing subsidies and social security, and that made her desperate. So when the opportunity to threaten people with lawsuits for money came up, Olga was all for it. And when Helen suggested a more sinister plan, well, Olga agreed to that too. So the theory goes, one day in 1993, 62-year-old Helen flipped through the newspaper. She stopped on the photo of a sweet old grandmother who happened to be on trial for nine murders. The woman in question, Dorothea Puente. She had made a killing running a boarding house, literally. She offered shelter to those in need only to steal their social security and disability checks and then murder them. Where most people would read that story in horror, Helen might have seen it and considered it something of a how-to manual. Perhaps Helen figured she too could target homeless men who were down on their luck. Then, like Dorothea, she'd offer them food and shelter. But rather than stealing social security checks, she had her sights set on a bigger prize, life insurance. Helen mulled the idea over for nearly four years, until finally, in 1997, the 66-year-old shared her thoughts with Olga. The 64-year-old was immediately on board. If there was money to be had, she wanted in. So now it was time to get down to business. After scouring the streets for a victim, the pair stumbled upon 71-year-old Paul Vados. He was in dire straits, waiting in line at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church for a free meal. He also seemed to have no close ties to anyone. To Helen and Olga, he was the perfect mark. The women made their way past volunteers and approached Paul with the gift of a lifetime. They promised to give him a home, pay his rent, and help him get his life together. Paul couldn't believe it. It was like he'd met two genuine angels. And the women made good on their promises. They moved him into an empty apartment, and since he was so frail, Olga came by every day to help feed and bathe him. Meanwhile, Helen not only paid the bills, she orchestrated the most crucial part of their plan, applying for life insurance. On the paperwork, she listed herself as Paul's fiance and Olga as his cousin. All they needed now was to get him to sign the dotted line. Olga had that covered. She got her hands on a document with Paul's signature on it. Then she marched down to the Hollywood Rubber Stamp Company and ordered a stamp of his John Hancock. With that, they had their all-important life insurance policy on Paul. But one wasn't enough. Nope, they took out at least six policies on Paul, with the potential benefits adding up to $879,000. Now, Paul was overinsured after just one policy. He was unhoused and had no income, but the women could pile up the policies because insurance companies didn't share information with each other, so they had no way of knowing about the multiple applications. What's more, they tended to overlook smaller policies. 
Perhaps with that in mind, Helen and Olga only applied for small amounts. 50,000 here, another 75,000 there, nothing that would raise any red flags. For Helen and Olga, the most important part of each policy was its incontestability clause. This meant that after two years from the signing date, the insurance companies would have a much more difficult time denying the claims. In such cases, even if the companies realize they've been deceived, they still might have to pay up. One of the only surefire ways to null such a policy is to prove criminal intent. So the women's plan was simple. They'd take out life insurance in Paul's name and then wait. In the interim, they'd watch over him and keep him happy. All the while, they'd mark days off the calendar. And when those two years expired, they'd kill him. Coming up, the clock runs out for Paul Vados. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. Two years. That's all Paul Vados had left to live once he met Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt. And during those two years, they figured out how the 71-year-old would die. They spent that time cooking for Paul, cleaning up after him, and taking care of the formerly unhoused man. And still, he was nothing more than an object to them, a means to an end. According to Donald Whitehead, executive director of the National Coalition for the Homeless, society often deems unhoused people as unimportant or less than. Because of that, it makes some people feel like they have the permission to commit violence against them. This isn't just based on anecdotal evidence either. In 2006, Princeton researchers ran a study to gauge people's reactions to various social groups. When subjects looked at images of middle-class people, the brain's social cognition regions kicked into gear. However, when they looked at pictures of unhoused people or objects, that same part of the brain didn't activate at all. In other words, participants tended to view the homeless the same as inanimate objects. That is, something that's all too easy to ignore. And in the case of Helen and Olga, something easy to get rid of. And to do that, they decided they'd run him over with a car. As far as insurance companies were concerned, hit and runs weren't usually indicative of foul play. 
Perhaps the two friends knew that and figured they could easily make it look like an accident. So on November 7, 1999, 68-year-old Helen and 66-year-old Olga picked Paul up from his apartment. They took him to the theaters where they bought tickets for The Bone Collector, a film about the hunt for a sadistic serial killer. It was an eerie hint of what was to come. Of course, Paul had no idea about that. While we don't know exactly what happened next, we can make an educated guess based on the evidence left behind. After the movie, the trio went to a diner. There, it's believed that the women spiked his food when he wasn't looking. Then, Helen and Olga waited for the drugs to take effect. When he was clearly inebriated, the women guided the 73-year-old back to the car and drove toward Hollywood. When they were about a mile away from Olga's place, they pulled into an empty alley and put the car in park. They dragged Paul out of the back seat and into the street, laying him flat on his back. Then they got back into the car and drove over him. Afterward, they didn't even stop to check if he was dead. They just kept going down the alley and never looked back. They'd done what they set out to do. The next morning, LAPD officers found Paul's body, but without any ID on him, they labeled him a John Doe and sent him off to the lab. Two days later, his toxicology report came back clean, but it's important to note it didn't test for prescription drugs. Meanwhile, Helen and Olga knew they couldn't jump the gun. If they reported Paul missing right away, it might look too suspicious. So they waited over a week until they went to the police. When they finally did, they fed the cops the story that Helen was Paul's one-time fiance and Olga was his cousin. The two of them were just oh so worried about him. As far as we can tell, the police took down the report but didn't connect the dots to their John Doe right away. But when they did, they reached out to Olga and informed her of her supposed cousin's death. She collected his body, and Helen, his pseudo-fiancé, paid for his burial. Luckily for the ladies, the police had no real leads in the hit-and-run. Once the women took Paul's body off their hands, they filed the case away. But while the police had hit pause on the investigation, the insurance companies weren't so quick to close the book. Given that Paul died in a hit-and-run with no witnesses, they needed to double-check that everything was above board. That was an inconvenience for sure, but Helen understood they were playing the long game. They'd waited two years already, what was a few more weeks. Besides, Helen had come into another fortune of her own. You see, cancer had recently gotten the better of her longtime real estate partner, Artie Aaron. But rather than grieve, Helen saw an opportunity to enrich herself. With lightning speed, she produced a power of attorney agreement and assumed control of the deeds for 13 of his properties. Those buildings were worth millions and should have gone straight to Artie's family. But Helen had documents that said otherwise. Now, it's very possible Helen genuinely convinced Artie to sign over his assets, but given what we know about her history with forging signatures, fraud seems a more likely scenario. Still, the documents appeared to be genuine, so when his family tried to contest them, it made no difference. 
That meant Helen was rolling in more dough. She treated herself to a designer wardrobe, a brand new Mercedes SUV, and a facelift. All the while, Olga watched from the sidelines. She wanted a cut of Helen's earnings. They were partners after all. But Helen saw the properties as a separate deal and made it clear that Olga wouldn't get a dime of that money. This left Olga fuming. Helen knew that she was struggling, and yet she wouldn't even offer her a lifeline. To rub salt in the wound, Helen had the audacity to complain about how much her plastic surgery hurt. It was behavior like this that likely brought Olga to her breaking point. She felt like she had the short end of the stick. Before the next bit of insurance money came in, she wanted to make sure she got her cut first. So in March of 2000, she called Mutual of Omaha, one of the companies where they held a policy. As Paul's cousin and blood relative, she tried to convince them that they should pay her before Helen. But apparently, they declined. Both of them were listed as co-beneficiaries, and they couldn't change that after Paul's death. Frustrated, Olga hung up. Five minutes later, she realized that her request might just get her into trouble with her greedy partner. She called the company right back and asked that they didn't tell Helen about her call. And it seems they respected her request. Helen never learned about that little betrayal, which was a good thing. Because as much as Olga hated to admit it, she needed her partner in crime. Without Helen, she couldn't get much done. That became clear in August of 2000, when Helen finally stepped in and took charge of the lingering insurance issues. She threatened to sue the companies if they didn't pay out promptly. Sure enough, her ultimatum worked. By the start of October, Helen and Olga received their checks. Between all the policies they took out on Paul, they each collected nearly $300,000 in benefits. For Olga, this was a life-changing amount. She could finally live the high life like Helen, but that huge wad of cash lost its luster sooner than expected. Olga was envious of Helen still having so much more than her, and that's an emotion that can spell disaster. Clinical psychologist Miriam Kermayer explains that envy stirs up feelings of anger, anxiety, and resentment, and creates problems not only in relationships, but also in a person's self-esteem. In short, we begin to believe we're less than because we have less. But we shouldn't let our envy get the best of us. According to Kermayer, there are several practical solutions to manage our feelings. One is to practice self-compassion and gratitude, to be thankful for who we are and all that we have. Another is to turn envy into motivation, to use our desire for something more as fuel to better our lives. Unfortunately, Olga took the latter point to a new extreme. She was willing to do whatever it took to have all that Helen had. And if that meant taking out another victim, then so be it. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Helen and Olga push their luck and get tangled up in a massive investigation. 
For more information on Hella Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt, amongst the many sources we used, we found Signed in Blood, the true story of two women, a sinister plot, and cold-blooded murder by Jeannie King, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns. Edited by Jane O. and Joel Callen. Fact-checked by Bennett Logan. Researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. And produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 